Support for this episode of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere is brought to you by MX Publishing, with the largest catalog of new Sherlock Holmes books in the world. New novels, biographies, graphic novels, and short story collections about Sherlock Holmes. Find them at mxpublishing.com. And by the Wes Express, the premier publisher of books about Sherlock Holmes and his world. Find them online at wesexpress.com. And by Dan Andriaco's latest Sebastian McCabe, Jeff Cody series. The latest title, No Ghosts Need Apply, is now available. Find out more at danandriaco.com. I hear of Sherlock everywhere since you became astronomer. In a world where it's always 1895, comes I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, a podcast for devotees of Mr. Sherlock Holmes, the world's first unofficial consulting detective. I've heard of you before. You're Holmes the meddler, Holmes the busybody, Holmes the Scotland Yard jacket officer. <laughs> The game's afoot as we discuss goings-on in the world of Sherlock Holmes enthusiasts, the bigger streeter regulars, and popular culture related to the great detective. As we go to press, sensational developments have been reported. So join your hosts, Scott Monty and Burke Walder, as they talk about what's new in the world of Sherlock Holmes. You couldn't have come at a better time! Well, hello once again, and welcome to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast for Sherlock Holmes devotees where it's always 1895. I'm Scott Monty. I'm Bert Wolder. And Bert, are you are you ready to be boxed in? <laughs> I'm ready to be boxed, stamped, posted, mailed, find myself at the lost letter office, all those things. Excellent. Excellent. Well, you seem to be the kind of guy who constantly thinks outside of the box. I do. I do think outside of the box. And in fact, I had the box around here somewhere. It's, <laughs> you know, my, my fear is it was recycled. I think I put it in the recycle. Oh, oh. Well, my hope here is that whether we can find the box or not, we will have what I would call uh, Schrodinger's Sherlockian relics. <laughs> you don't know whether they're inside the box or outside the box at any given moment. Well, 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 if you observe them, <laughs> you know, that's sort of a day. If you measure well, them, let if me, somebody looks at them. Let me exist. ask you this. Do they exist if you see them but don't observe them? That's a very Watsonian possibility. I like that. If you see. No, I think and I think from a Heideggerian standpoint, I think you'd have to say they they're in the realm of the corporeal. But I'll tell you, that means that if you just had a box and you could imagine a whole series of objects in them and you never opened the box, mm. you would still have, um, I, I guess you'd have a box that you hadn't opened. <laughs> I like that. Well, imagine, imagine the possibilities of such an evidence box. Yeah. Or I wonder now if you had dinner with Schrodinger and you got the bill, but never opened the folder the bill came in to look at it. <laughs> Could you then, in good conscience, leave him with it? <laughs> and really, what's the tip on that then? 
Oh, the philosophizing yeah. could keep on going. And before we actually delve into the philosopher's song, I'm going to go to our <laughs> our housekeeping here. The show notes for this episode are available at ihose.co slash ihose225. You're going to make sure to want to visit that because we will have additional links for you to, uh, to, to check out as well as some actual photographic evidence of what we're talking about in today's show. While you're there, of course, you can sign up to be notified via email whenever we make an update on the site. Uh, we do some text updates as well as audio updates, and we've got all kinds of ways to connect with us there, uh, including the email address for what you need to do to participate in this episode's quiz, the Canonical Couplets Quiz. We will have that after the interview, so stay tuned for an item out of the iHose vaults. After retiring from the Maryland School for the Deaf, Deborah Clark worked part-time for Goucher College in Towson, Maryland, as an adjunct professor of special education and as a coach for student teachers for six years. She spent the last few years traveling and visiting friends and family, as well as doing some volunteer work with the local hospital and enjoying Sherlockian activities. Deborah's Sherlockian history includes being the first female member of the Six Napoleons of Baltimore and originating the name from the Scintillation of Scions gathering. Debbie, welcome to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. Thank you. So why don't you take us back, way, way back, and let everyone know how you first got acquainted with Sherlock Holmes? Um... And, well, I've always been interested in mysteries, but I think my first formal introduction to Sherlock was seventh grade English class. Um, Our English teacher used to read us uh, probably the abridged version of the stories once a week. It was part of a, a certain kind of curriculum, I expect, and I got hooked. Um, soon thereafter, I discovered my friend's dad had a complete set, and I read them all. <laughs> and I discovered our local library had a copy of The Misadventures of Sherlock Holmes on their used book table for sale. So I bought that and got into the broader um, Sherlockian world. And um that was reignited when I found a copy of The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes by Baring Gould in my teens. And again, with the 7% solution when that came out. And then I came upon a listing in one of the community continuing ed brochures that a guy called Tr- Paul Churchill was offering a continuing ed class on Sherlock Holmes, with which included a visit to the Sherlock Holmes Museum. Well, I knew enough by that time to know that there isn't a Sherlock Holmes Museum, at least not a public one, in Maryland that I knew of, so I signed up. And lo and behold, there is a Sherlock Holmes Museum in Maryland, and it was called Paul Churchill's living room. <laughs> In fact, and dining room. So, um, so that 
and of course, through Paul, I got into Watson's Tin Box of Ellicott City, which is my home scion. Wow. And <laughs> the rest is history. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> wow. That is, that's a lot to unpack there, uh, Debbie. I'm, <laughs> I'm particularly fascinated that you discovered and devoured the misadventures of Sherlock Holmes so early on in your association with the character. I mean, this is a, this is a set of uh, pastiches that was yeah. uh, edited by Ellery Queen, um, right. put out in 1944. Of course, there's this famous trilogy dinner where uh, three books were um, uh, launched at, at a dinner in March of 1944, and The Misadventures of Sherlock Holmes was one of them. And as, as further background, the, the Conan Doyle boys, uh, Adrian and Dennis, were none too pleased with, with this particular tome because they felt that it ripped off their father's character. And, uh, well, let's just put it frankly, they weren't making any money off of it. That, right. that I think, was the real crime. <laughs> yeah, I understand that now. I yeah. didn't then. <laughs> so what, what did you think? I mean, did, when you... When you read this second volume, this this book of pastiches, did you at that young age view it as simply an extension of what we know as the canon? Did you view it as something that was uh, outside of the norm? What, what were your perceptions? Um, I've that's a good question. I thought of it as sort of outside the norm. I didn't much care for the parodies. I mean, like most people who finish the Conan Doyle canon, I just wanted more stories. So I was more interested in the pastiches, mm. even though some, of course, were better than others, and I liked some better than others. But um, I was just intrigued that there were more out there. Mm. And... When you mentioned, you know, speaking of out there, that, that you you saw this mention of the Sherlock Holmes Museum, was this your first encounter with what we commonly refer to as Sherlockians? No. Um, a year or two before that, I guess, I, I was a avid reader of the old mystery magazine, which is was a... Um, like an Ellery Queen magazine format. Mm. And they had in the back a Sherlock Holmes convention in San Francisco. And I thought, that's really interesting. I never heard of that. So I wrote to the person, the contact person, and she wrote back the exact right words. Come if you can. If unavailable, come all the same. And I thought, these are my people. <laughs> so I took an airplane by myself to San Francisco to the airport hotel. And that was my first experience with other major Sherlockian groups and, and the great game and so forth. And um, I'm trying to think who was the guest person. I don't remember. Somebody who actually knew Conan Doyle was there, and that was kind of exciting. Wow. Um, also, the vendors, well, were really interesting. I picked up a couple of related source books and things I didn't really 
know about. I picked up a Baydeckers of the right year and thought, this is really cool. <laughs> this, you know, for the final problem in the empty house, this is very cool for Switzerland. So um, that was my first experience, I guess. And I went, I met some people and went back to San Francisco to my first John Bennett Shaw workshop a couple of years after that. And, and later I ran into Paul. It, actually, John Bennett Shaw put me in touch with Peter Blau. And I, um, I think I went to one red circle, but was unable to go to hardly any others because they were always on a Friday night and I'm a teacher by Friday, I'm dead. <laughs> but, um, Paul's was the first group I could actually get to m more often than not. Hmm. Interesting. And in your, in those first meetings, what, what, um, how did your interests collide? I mean, did you, did you, or are you a collector? Did you start to collect things? Were you just interested in, in reading? What, I mean, you know, meeting Peter, meeting John Bennett Shaw, uh, Shaw Conference, you know, you're really in on the deep end now. Yeah. <laughs> um, and all of that, I did start, I have started, I do have, I should say, a collection it's not terribly valuable, but it means a lot to me. And at the moment, it's taking over my spare bedroom. <laughs> um, and um, I just really liked being with those people because they talk my language. And um, it was just uh, enjoying everything about it. But I must say that Paul took it to another level with his level of collecting because he collected realia and if he couldn't if he couldn't find it he would often make it <laughs> right now is that what he when you first visited his sherlock holmes museum there in maryland was he was he always um you know sort of ma manufacturing gathering collecting artifacts related to the stories or did that come later no, by the time I met him, he had a a sitting room in his living room. He had um, the fireplace. He had the the knife in the fireplace mantle. He had dottles. He had. Um, I think he had it. Yeah, and he had. Um, I think he had a whole. Rudge Whitmore bicycle, I think. <laughs> I know he had full dresses. He had a in he had a wedding dress for um oh heck, the woman in Hattie Duran. Hattie Duran. Thank you very much. Yes, exactly. From the noble bachelor, yeah. That's right. He had um a cassock from a priest from the final problem. Um I he has a a blue dress from Copper Beaches. He has a tiara. He had he had just a lot of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. He was well into his collecting mode by the time I met him. Yeah, it sounds like it. So, so what did you think when you walked into his home and saw this vast array of collectibles? <laughs> 
wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, he, I think some of the most obvious ones were little um, shadow boxes of the, the sitting room and Sherlock Holmes' bedroom. And then he had a live taxidermed um, cobra with a a mongoose on the sideboard (laughs) next to the gasogene. So it's overwhelming. Wow. (laughs) But he had an entire wall of evidence boxes. Um, as he come in the door, there they were, and then to the right side were was the rest of his living room. So, so talk to us a little bit about evidence boxes. What what were these, and and what did Paul do with them? Okay, um, Paul said that when he joined or started the first his first Sherlock Holmes Society that. He was lousy at quizzes. Now, Steve Clarkson was making up the quizzes, and Steve was an incredible quiz maker, so these were not easy. But Paul felt like his memory wasn't that good, and that if he had or made objects that would be from the story that he would call an evidence box, he was inspired by the Simon good now i think um sherlock holmes file initially um that it would help his his quiz taking score so he started out doing that and kept going (laughs) and he would update or replace if he found something better too so he just it took off. And I think his wife had given him um, a 7% solution early on. And I think he started doing this after she died. The, the, so. the book, not the actual drug, right? Correct. That's okay. correct. Yes, thank you for, for <laughs> well, look, qualifying you, that. You give somebody a 7% solution, and boy, that'll motivate them, sure. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> So, so this became something of a of a hobby of a, of, of an affectation for him. Absolutely, mm. yeah. It was his major hobby. That's wonderful. Well, we are going to take a quick commercial break, and when we come back with Debbie Clark, we will be continuing to talk about evidence boxes. Stay tuned. Well, you may recall us speaking to playwright David McGregor here on episode 140. The good news is our friends at MX Publishing now have some of David McGregor's work in stock. Three new books by David McGregor, including Sherlock in Love, the Holmes Adler Mysteries. These are a triptych of plays that first appeared at the Purple Rose Theater in Chelsea, Michigan. The Adventure of the Elusive Ear, The Adventure of the Fallen Souffle, and The Adventure of the Ghost Machine. All three are creative and bring Holmes into contact with other people whom you may have heard of, including Vincent Van Gogh, Auguste Escoffier, and Tesla and Edison. Adding to the other group of books is David's two-volume series, Sherlock Holmes, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. In these books, David takes us on a journey through the late 1800s, early 1900s, through the end of the 20th century, and into the 21st, 
as Sherlock Holmes has been played by so many different actors and was brought to life by so many different forces. David takes us through these various times and introduces us to names that you may be familiar with and names that may be new to you. All three of these books are available at mxpublishing.com today. All right, we are back, and we just got into uh, Paul Churchill's abode and some of his collectibles, and Debbie was telling us about uh, evidence boxes. Now, how many of these evidence boxes did Paul create? Over 60, and I say that because there are 60 stories, of course, but Mm -hmm. some of the evidence boxes have two or three boxes to them. For example... The final problem has Dr. Watson's medical bag with um, some stuff in it, and then there's a whole separate box. Most of the boxes are the sides of um, the photograph boxes you can get in Target or uh, Michaels Michaels or or something. Um, But there's others that are uh, in various containers, there's one in what looks like the case you would put a crown in, and that's for the Musgrave ritual. And some are <laughs> cigar boxes. One is a Prince Albert cigar box. <laughs> so there must have been a mention of Prince Albert in that story. Sure. Um, they come in all shapes and sizes. Some of them are huge. Some of them are uh, like... A storage box, you know, a two by three storage box, and that's hmm. probably one of the novels. But yeah. the rest are in assorted size, photograph, and other boxes. So there's sixty plus. Wow, wow! And, and and Paul kept all of these at his home, at like out on display. Um, they were in a bookcase to the left that took up the whole wall to the left of his front door <laughs> and and it's the larger ones sort of around the edges um but yeah he kept them all there and right now they're in my house <laughs> <laughs> so i want to get back to uh, some of the contents a little bit but but talk about that how how did they come to uh, come into your possession after uh, paul had them for so many years when Paul got sick, he was very worried that about what would happen to the boxes. Um, his wish was that they would stay with Watson's tin box, um, but he didn't know how that would happen. And as a sort of a throwaway line, I said, well, I got a whole wall with a bookcase on it, and it probably would fit those if, if that's what you really want to do. Well, as it turned out, he <laughs> yeah, um, he left them to his oldest son, and a week or so after Paul's funeral, um, he called me up and said, "Did you mean what you said?" <laughs> and I said, "Well, if if that's what you would like to do, yes, I would. I would be happy to be the caretaker of these four Watson's tin box and." Um, What we did at that point was four or five of us from Watson's Tin Box went to Paul's house and inventoried pad and paper what was in everything. 
Wow. Um, and then I made a number of trips to my house and took all the stuff out of my bookcases and put his stuff in. And um, what Paul did and what I do is I take a box to Watson's Tin Box meetings every month and share the contents of those. So whatever the story is of the month, that's the box I take. And other people are allowed to take them also if they sign them out and make a pledge with blood that they will bring them back in pack. <laughs> <laughs> and they have, they've been to, um, been to the Red Circle, they've been to the Six Napoleons of Baltimore. Um, I should mention that Paul and Denny Dobry had a really good relationship and they used to share objects. If Denny found something or made something that he thought was really cool, he would give one to Paul and vice versa. So um, Denny was also very helpful in, in helping keep all this together. Yeah, and, and I should mention that uh, Denny Dobry was... Uh, our guest, well, a couple of times, but uh, he was on episode 151, excuse me, 153 of mm-hmm. I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, where we talked about his recreation of 221B Baker Street in his basement in Reading, Pennsylvania. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. That's, you are there. <laughs> Absolutely there. Oh. So, um, Tell us, Debbie, a little bit about Watson's Tin Box. I, I take it this is the local uh, Sherlockian society. Uh, when when was it formed and why? Okay, I don't actually remember when, but uh, certainly before my time, Paul Churchill was getting interested in Sherlockiana and Sherlock Holmes and he wanted to get together with other people who were interested. And one of his school colleagues, Rod McCaslin, was interested. And one of Paul's students, um, the daughter of Steve Clarkson, was in Paul's class and said, well, my dad's real interested in that. So the three of them got together and Steve sort of mentored them into how to do a society and so forth. And they came up with the name of Watson's Tin Box of Ellicott City, Maryland. And it started to grow. And I think there were maybe six or seven people initially. And by the time I joined, there were 20-something easily. And it's a monthly meeting um, at a restaurant. And we do what most other scions do, have a meal talk about the story we have a, a have a learned quiz a learned sorry a learned topic speaker or presentation and we have a quiz um, for prizes and we show the evidence box um, usually that's before the quiz because it's a good crib sheet <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's it's been going, let's see, I probably joined in the 80s. It's probably been going since into the 70s. Wow. And we now serve most of mid-Maryland, unlike the Six Napoleons, it's more 
Baltimore-based. Okay. Um, and, and how many members do you have now? Ish. I'd, ish, I'd <laughs> say they don't all come to all the meetings, but I'd say 50-ish, <laughs> maybe more. We do tend to have large meetings these days. It's when we have meetings. Um, it can be 30-plus on on any given Monday. Wow. And people come from all over the place if they're in the area. And have you been continuing the tradition even during the pandemic? Yes, we've been on Zoom um, every month, and I show the evidence box on Zoom every month. Um, so, yeah, we had a meeting just last night. Huh. And and that's that's intriguing to me because it, on the one hand, you're not getting to to handle, to feel, to you know really have that tactile experience with the items in the evidence box, uh, and yet you can be certain that it will be a more thorough going through uh, that you know with scattered attention in restaurants and side chatting and everything, people might miss things. How, what's your experience, Ben, in terms of people's engagement with the evidence boxes virtually versus uh, personally in, in real life? Um, they haven't actually said, but they keep asking me to do it, so I suppose it's going okay. I tend to agree with you that the the best part of the evidence boxes is getting to look at and feel and hold and read the stuff because... Paul would, he would not only create a letter, for example, there, I just looked at a, a letter that he had created theoretically from Irene Adler's lover, Wilhelm Gottesleib, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, um, with a very florid design and Inside, it's my dear Irene, I, I long for your, you know, and it goes on. And um, the temptation or book of Baron Gruner, he's got old <laughs> photographs in there and little descriptions of the ladies. And I mean, you can imagine that, but it's one thing to look at it. <laughs> so, as I say, whatever Paul couldn't couldn't find he could make and um i think his investiture although coro is certainly a really good one could have easily been somebody the forger because <laughs> he did that but he was also a philatelist and a, a coin collector so if he has actual victoria stamps on the letters and he has created little postmarks and he has created the Legion of Honor form with the with the uh, the stamps on it and so forth. And seeing all that stuff up close and personal is excellent. But I have had numerous people say that their favorite part of our meetings is the evidence box. And and what about the contents of of the evidence box, Deb? Is are they are they are the contents fixed, or do people, even now after Paul's passing, come up with things that might be added or replaced or improved? Or Well, we have had to replace the snake skin from the speckled band. 
it just doesn't hold up after a hundred years. <laughs> You know, and after a hundred um, meetings, I mean, yeah, boy. that too. Yeah, <laughs> um, yes, we've had somebody bring us a plane tree leaf from Britain because we don't have the same variety here. My favorite edition, and they have been rare, but my favorite edition is from Shannon Carlisle's class, who does has a Sherlock Holmes club in Tennessee. They decided that our evidence box was missing Mr. Henry Baker's walking stick. And they were absolutely right. And they wrote a little essay about why this was really important and it should be there. And um, we, I read their letter to the group. The group agreed and we added Mr. Henry Baker's walking stick and gave them all honorary Wilsonton Blocks membership for their efforts. <laughs> now, how does one fit a walking stick into a box? You don't. I have a walking stick, a harpoon, Sherlock Holmes's walking stick from um, The Final Problem. I have a, a whole lot of stuff that doesn't fit. <laughs> it's in a corner right now. <laughs> You must be fun walking into restaurants with some of that stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Happily. Yeah. <laughs> the walking stick, thankfully, um, collapses into three pieces. The harpoon, I sort of keep that covered. <laughs> and uh, the, we used to meet at Ohulahan's in Columbia, Maryland, which is sort of in the middle of the state and not too far from Ellicott City. Unfortunately, that restaurant closed with the pandemic, so we are currently homeless um, and hopefully are going to be uh, auditioning restaurants to attend when the pandemic lets up a little more. Hmm. Well, if there's any restaurant in the mid-Maryland area that has room for a harpoon and calamari on the menu, um, yep. I'm sure Watson's Tin Box would love to hear from you. <laughs> uh, so uh, as you've handled, I mean, Paul, Paul's been gone for what, about 15 years or more now? Ten, I think. Ten? Okay. Well, as, as you've handled these evidence boxes for the last decade or more, and brought them to and from meetings or pulled them out for your Zoom calls. I have to imagine that you probably have a favorite box. I, I can't say that. Um, I like bits and pieces of all of them, frankly. I like, I like some of the, the paper stuff that Paul has created. I think the Naval Treaty is remarkable. I think... Um, is it written in French? Yeah, it is. Holy cow. Yeah, it is. And has all the little seals and ribbons and stuff that you would imagine. Mm. The Musgrave Ritual one is, is likewise quite nice. Um, I really like the Legion of Honor one that is from The Final Problem. I like oh I like the uh, the little box with the needle that come the dying detective 
That's very clever. I like that a lot. So there's (laughs) bits of all of them that I like. There's a couple of the stories that aren't real grabbers don't have a lot in them. (laughs) So like the engineer's thumb doesn't have a lot in it. However, it does have the thumb (laughs) in alcohol. Do you, do you have the mask that little Lucy wore in the yellow face? Yes. Oh, look yeah. at that. Yep. I have a cataract knife from the Silver Blaze. If, if you, the only thing I don't have is like uh, great big things like a whole bicycle. <laughs> and um, I do have a piece of various tires, Dunlop and... Rudge Whitworth and that sort of thing. Mm. And I have, um, the only thing I didn't bring home because it just really creeped me out was the effigy of Holmes with a bullet hole in his head from the, um, the empty house. Mm. That, that was just too creepy. <laughs> <laughs> You've heard them on here before, and now they are back. It is the Sebastian McCabe Jeff Cody Mystery Series by Dan Andriaco. You've heard of the novels No Police Like Holmes, Holmes Sweet Holmes, The 1895 Murder, and more. Well, they're back on September 28th with the latest title, No Ghosts Need Apply. Sherlock Holmes, of course, said to Dr. Watson, the world is big enough for us, no ghosts need apply. But McCabe and Cody, well, they don't have a choice when a popular reality TV show comes to their native Erin, Ohio, to record a Halloween special about some entity that's disturbing the local gastropub known as the Speakeasy. What was expected to be some fun publicity for the pub turns into a nightmare after someone is shot to death one night in the same place and in the same way as Jackie O'Brien almost 100 years earlier. The police chief recognizes this is Mac and Jeff's kind of case, but they're forced to become virtual sleuths for most of the time when the restaurant and most businesses are shut down because of covid Before he solves the murder and a second homicide, Mac makes an embarrassing blunder in one lesser case and scores a great triumph in another. Make sure you check out No Ghosts Need Apply by Dan Andriaco at danandriaco.com today. And, and how about how about stories like the Priory School? Do you have horseshoes that have a cow foot bottom on them? And uh... yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's wonderful. And where do you where do you dock the uh, the bark aurora? Where do you? <laughs> uh, happily, I have a miniature. <laughs> oh, there we go. Okay, good. There we go. Yeah, steam launch aurora. I should. Yes. Yeah. So what happened to that wax effigy of Holmes in Paul's collection? I don't know. Well, it gets hot in Maryland, I think. It it's, does. It's out there somewhere, hunting for a home. <laughs> no, might, I don't often, think so. I think, and ran away. It could have. Um, it was left with 
Paul's daughter-in-law and her husband, and I don't really know what happened to it. Uh, It it merged with the Yankee Candle Factory. (laughs) Probably. Probably. (laughs) Uh, So, Debbie, when when you... Uh, introduce people to these evidence boxes. What do you find is the most requested item or the most requested box that people want to see? Usually the ones they're most familiar with, like the Red-Headed League or the Scandal in Bohemia or the Speckled Band. But then, you know, then people have personal favorites. Mm. Is there anything in these boxes that tends to surprise people? Well, yeah, the thumb from <laughs> from the engineer's thumb and the ear from, uh, yeah. The cardboard the box. Yeah. Thank you, yes, the Cushing's, yeah. And I must admit, they're, they are pretty surprising <laughs> because they look really real. <laughs> Well, they're preserved in salt, of course. Absolutely. Um, that's amazing. So, um, gosh, I, I we, <laughs> we 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 have we have pictures of of some of these to uh, to share with our our fans, and those will be Good. available in the show notes. So, um, make sure you take a look at those. Um, I I remember Paul coming up to Boston years ago to a speckled band meeting and bringing one of his yeah, evidence sure. boxes right. up there. Um, and I was just, I was astounded by the detail, by the realism. Um, as, as you look at some of these things, have you ever, because obviously we're doing this all in fun. These, these weren't actual items that were claimed from the canon, but have you perceived of any uh, inaccuracies in any of them? Um, or has anyone else pointed them out, if there are any? Occasionally, but, you know, I can't remember what they are right now. I do know that people are amazed at how good they are. Mm. That really that really gets them. <laughs> <laughs> They're... Pretty astounding. They are. I, I mean, I was I was always uh, impressed with with Paul's presentation myself. Um, you know, and, and and look, when when we go to uh, these events, you know, we we're accustomed to seeing you know, more common things like a shilling. You know, right? you see an actual yeah. Victorian shilling. Okay, that's fine. Everybody that gets invested into the Baker Street Irregulars gets an actual shilling affixed to their certificate, but. But with Paul's uh, executions here of the evidence boxes, I mean, it goes <laughs> so many levels beyond that where you didn't oh, yeah. even think it was possible. Oh, right, right. And he, he used to talk about, um, and it's true, he would go into an antique store before we had the Internet and wander around and come back with stuff like um, – a schoolboy's cap that he would then embroider or affix something to in the right colors that was mentioned in the Priory School. Or he would come back with, um, let's say, this uh, a jockey silk that happened to be the right colors for the silver blaze. Mm. I mean, it's just amazing. He, he sort of had a an ESP for that sort of thing. 
Yeah, I mean, you think about having to having to be aware when you go into a store or a shop, and having to know the canon uh, backward and forward. And yep. inside and out. I mean, the level of detail that Paul goes to, it, it really, I guess we have uh, Steve Clarkson to thank for that and his uh, his evil quizzes, uh, yes. making Paul yes. pay attention to that level of detail. Yes. And then Paul was quiz master after Steve, and he was not quite as evil, but he loved puns, as you probably well know. Yes. And so he would... And he loved to draw, so he would make little cartoons around the edge of the quiz paper, and some of them were puns, and they were all related to the quiz he had on the paper, but it was just kind of fun to figure out what all that was. Another level of hint. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm looking for the uh, the detective, the treasure hunter in all of us, I suppose. It's fabulous, and it's it's sort of eternal. You know, people feel a very deep connection to some of these stories. You know, we see it with people who enjoy cosplay and things like that, but it's sure. uh, it's an enormous amount of fun. I wonder, is, is there anywhere an inventory? Has anybody ever typed up a list, you know, what's in each evidence box? Yeah. Because it would be a great challenge, you know, for our listeners to... Uh, begin some of them to begin to create these kinds of evidence boxes themselves and and my memory of them is the boxes themselves were really quite beautiful you know you used to be able to find in antique shops printers type drawers yeah you know which had small compartments for obviously right. for each letter well in the same way paul designed the evidence boxes as i remember you know with many compartments so it's not just a box of things rattling around in it it's a real real display some of them are real displays and sadly some of them are boxes with things rattling around <laughs> <in them. laughs> it runs the gamut <laughs> i guess those he kept at home yeah yeah yeah, the, um, but yes, there is an inventory, and it is the hope of Watson's tin box at some future date after the pandemic is lessened to get all this online so that people can see them, not just us, mm. but that they could go on, on a website and pull up, here's a gasogene, here's a tantalus. Here's Sherlock Holmes' gold watch with um, the the pound that Irene Adler gave him, and um, see things for themselves. And and there you will have that Sherlock Holmes Museum in Maryland. Yes, that's right. Available to people worldwide. Well, we will look forward to that uh, day, Debbie. And if there is uh, any help that our listeners can give, I'm sure uh, we can put them in touch with you, uh, whether it's helping construct some boxes, helping with the digitization of the archive. I'm, I'm sure folks would love to lend a hand. Yeah, it's digitized as we speak, but um, we're trying to work with the university to get it up and running with them. Oh, superb. Yeah. Well, we wish you the best of luck in all of that and uh, hope that the evidence boxes are available for years to come for many, many generations of Sherlockians. Me too. Absolutely. Well, thank you for all that you do in the world of Sherlock Holmes and for sharing that love with us. 
Certainly, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I don't think a lot of our listeners may realize the connections to an interest in mystery that this conversation with Debbie and discussion about the evidence boxes points out. I mean, for example, look at the people that we've talked to over the last few months. Ross Davies with the Baker Street Almanac, the last edition of which included a replica visor, very similar to... (laughs) The cricket cap with the white chevron that was uh, made a featured in in the Priory School, and then we had talked. I think on IHO's was it two o three? I don't really remember the number, but we had Gus and Luke Holwerda with us, who are who run the Jeremy Brett podcast, and they've issued Sherlockian relics, including the Musgrave ritual and. Radix Pettis Diaboli, the poison from the devil's foot and the blue carbuncle. And then back in the 1930s, Dennis Wheatley had a series of books published by Hutchison in London that were reprinted in the 1980s called uh, Who Killed Robert Prentice? The Malinsay Massacre, Murder Off Miami. But these were uh, folders of evidence as if it had been collected by the police force for some of these cases with a lot of physical items telegrams folded in there, rings, bits of jewelry, if poison was involved, little arsenical tablets and things like that. And then back in the 1980s, someone also did a study in Scarlet, a Sherlock Holmes murder dossier, which has Holmes's business card and all sorts of things from the study in Scarlet case. So so this is, you know, just, just wanting to experience some of these stories and touch the items that are mentioned can be very attractive uh, to folks. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's uh, funny. I've, I've got a, a book of, gosh, I don't know when it was published, um, 2007 by Dwayne Swierzynski, uh, an interactive Sherlock Holmes mystery, The Crimes of Dr. Watson, uh, very similar to what you're talking about there with the, uh, the study in Scarlet. This is actually a solvable mystery with uh, physical clues, tactile clues here, uh, whether it's a ticket from the theater or an arrest warrant, uh, items you can pull out of little envelopes they have uh, buried throughout. And then, um, oh, look at this. You get toward the, the end there, and it looks like uh, a patent illustration for artificial kneecaps. <laughs> How about that? Um, oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Uh, and then you get to the end, and they, of course, have the uh, the solution there, uh kind of uh, under a wax seal. So uh, no temptation to break it open beforehand. But oh. I, I think that's that's the marvel of where we are with this hobby, this intersection of uh, the written word, of literature and reality. And, and you think about, um, you know, the exhibitions we've seen, the international exhibition of Sherlock Holmes. Uh, we talked about that here uh, a number of episodes ago where you could go in and uh, feel the clues and see things up close. Isadora Persano and his uh, worm, unknown to uh, to science, his remarkable worm. Um, 
all the way back to the uh, Sherlock Holmes exhibition of 1951 with many of these uh, realistic objects. And we talked about the jellyfish recently on trifles uh, and, and the snake right. and, and whatnot. And these things uh, were, were the basis for the uh, Sherlock Holmes sitting room that was reconstructed in the Sherlock Holmes pub there in London. So mm. it's it's this amazing intersection of the fictional and the factual and uh, the intertwining of them both to really make this such a such an experience for people. The first Sherlock Holmes parody was probably written in 1896, The Field Bazaar, by Arthur Conan Doyle himself. He knew laughing was good for you. That's why the Wessex Press continues the tradition with The True Adventures of Sherlock Holmes by Terence Faherty. It's a rare collection of Watson's early first drafts of the cases of Sherlock Holmes that will show you the truth behind the engineer's thumb and the strange insanity of General Waxbutton. Learn the actual facts behind the adventure of the notorious parasol chaser and astonish your friends when you tell them the man with the twisted lip actually struck it big as a part-time bustle fitter. Seven of these great stories have been published in Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine and four appear here for the very first time in this very first collection. Now is the perfect time for a comfortable chair and a long laugh. Get the true adventures of Sherlock Holmes at wessexpress.com today. That's everyone's favorite quiz theme song music. That's right. It's the theme to Canonical Couplet, where we give you two lines of poetry and you need to feed us back what the heck it is we were talking about. Uh, we, of course, are looking for the title of one of the Sherlock Holmes stories when we give you these clues. And the last time we were here on episode 224, we gave you this clue. Holmes exhausted Palmer, and then Dunlop told him more. A forbidden squalid inn displayed a gamecock at the door. Bert, I almost hesitate to ask, but do you know which story we're talking about? Of course, yes. It's a, that's the Christmas story about the handyman who froze to death. It's a great story. It's called The Blue Carpenter. <laughs> wow have you been to a wawa market is that where that comes from <laughs> no i i actually have a trombone player here in the corner and the reason for the delay there is because he passed out because that joke was so bad <laughs> he's and he hears all the bad jokes let me tell you uh, i can imagine um no you were a little bit off there bert just a little oh, bit no, um no. yeah i know uh well our friend eric deckers of course wrote in as he always does and he gave us his alternative title. He said, I've got the answer. It's the story of the 12th century monk who had a serious bronchial infection. It's the adventure of the friar's green drool. No, wait, that makes no sense, he writes. It's the adventure of the priory school. Yes, that's correct, Eric, the priory school. Well, we are going to see who else uh, knew that and throw all of those names in the revolving drum. And we'll give the prize wheel a big spin. 
We look for our winner this time. Lots of people contributed. And this time it lands on 47, number 47. And that corresponds to Carol Berger. Carol, congratulations. We'll be sending you a copy of the Sherlock Holmes scrapbook, uh, which we mentioned was part of the uh, Shaw 100. Uh, so uh, look out for that, and we will be in touch with your prize. Now, this time around, we have another prize. In this case, it's going to be something from the vaults of Iho, something three-dimensional from our own evidence box of sorts, and it will be available to the winner of this quiz. No justice for Holmes's client, nor for Hailing lost before. The fiends escape to Reading and elude the grasp of law. If you know the answer to this canonical couplet, put it in an email. Address the comment that I hear of Sherlock.com with canonical couplet in the subject line. If you are among all of the correct answers and we choose your name at random, you'll win. Good luck. All right. Do you, do you know how many tchotchkes, bits of ephemera, effluvia we have around the IHO's vaults, Bert? No, no, I don't. Do you have a sort of a microfiber mop you can use to gather them up? Or <laughs> we, um, it, it's going to take uh, probably pincers, tongs, a claw. You know, like one of those uh, carnival claws that gets things out of the uh, out of the machine. I imagine it must be very painful to go in there without wearing shoes. You know, if you just got socks on or bare feet step on all those things there are a lot of sharp objects yeah almost as sharp as you my friend no wow well in the meantime we will keep everyone's senses sharpened as we go into the last quarter of 2021 this is season 15 we have oh gosh just a handful of episodes left i i suppose if there are three months left and we do two episodes per month. Uh, we've got at least what eight point seven episodes left to do. I, no, I, have, I was you, never good at math. You didn't carry the two. Oh, sure. Six more episodes <laughs> for this season for twenty twenty one. We have some wonderful guests lined up. Looking forward to talking to them. In the meantime, if you have any comments or feedback about the show, any ideas that you want us to pursue, please feel free to email us at comment at ihearofsherlock dot com. In the meantime, I am the always pursuant Scott Monty, and I am. <laughs> And the, I am the persimmon-like Bert Walder. And together we say, The, the Game's, game's Afoot! afoot. <laughs> the, the Game's, game's Afoot! You know, I'm afraid that in the pleasure of this conversation, I'm neglecting business of importance, which awaits me elsewhere. Thank you for listening. Please be sure to join us again for the next episode of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast dedicated to Sherlock Holmes. Goodbye, and good luck, and believe me to be my dear fellow. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
Very sincerely yours, Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> <laughs>